Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, July 28th, 2016, so we're talking about energy, materials, and industrials. I'm joined in studio by Motley Fool Premium Analyst Taylor Muckerman. How's it going, man? I've never been called a premium analyst before. I appreciate it. Well, that, you though. work, you're 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 on the premium side. You That's work true. for the newsletters. That's true. You're a what is your fancy title? Co-GM of Canada. Yeah, associate general manager slash analyst. Insert eye roll. Two hats. Yeah, I'm doing it with you. Yeah. Um, anyway, what? And a company where you can kind of make up your title. I don't know if that really makes any sense. Yeah, I'm actually an executive chef here, even though I have no <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so cooking up some financial results. Um, yeah, I'm cooking the books. Um, so uh, we're gonna do a little bit. Uh, we're we're gonna take our listeners to school today, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's gonna be an oil and gas show. We haven't done one of those in a while. Last week we talked about uh, Elon Musk's master plan for Tesla, and the week before that was a Tesla themed show as well. We they, they they keep doing things, and yeah, I have to right, cover them. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but anyway, so uh, we 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 sat down and we came up with a couple of industry specific terms yes. that investors in the oil and gas space need to know to really get to know the companies that. You know, Fine carbon fossil fuels. Yeah, this is for the exploration and production companies. Yep. Um, so, for start, what when you're looking at a company, Taylor, mm-hmm. you know, full Canada, just your personal portfolio, whatever. Um, what is the first term that you look for that might be useful for our listeners? Well, since we're talking about upstream companies. Um, I'll, I'll look at them generally just um, for for services, uh, for for the Motley Fool services, or just to research in general. I'm personally, I don't invest in upstream producers. I just own personal um, habit. You uh, and Crow, man. Yeah, yeah. We like the services companies and the pipelines, but um, to really understand what's happening in the market, you need to understand upstream producers. And uh, when you're looking at these, you're generally not really going to look at price to price to earnings because in a cyclical industry, that can be a little bit deceiving. Uh, you could see low PEs when um, you know earnings are through the roof, so they're at the top of the cycle, and then you could see high PEs scaring investors away when earnings are in a trough, as they have been over the last uh, couple of years. Because the market does attempt to discount the future, they do take. Cycle, yeah, the cyclical nature of the uh, commodity cycle into uh, into account. Right. So that that simple ratio there that a lot of people it's like the first thing some investors look for is the PE ratio to see how it's valued compared to earnings. Um, but that might not be the best place. So you enterprise value and um, and so you can look at enterprise value for reserves. So you could see what it's valued at per barrel of oil that they believe they can extract, or you can do what we'll talk about a little later is um, oil enterprise value. Per PV10, which is the present value of the reserves, discounted at 10%. So uh, there's a few different metrics that you're going to look at for these, and you want to look at cash flow because a lot of these upstream producers are dividend payers, for better or for worse. Um, so that's a little bit more typical, but um, enterprise value is a very important metric. Got it. Okay. So the first metric that I really want to talk about when we uh, hop over to the uh, the income statement, you're talking about gap and your uh, gap earnings, net income, and PEs and everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I always tell people that are getting started in investing, um, PE and net income, it's 
that's an accountant's game. Yeah, you can make can that look fudged. however you want. <laughs> Executive chef, tell us how it is. Yeah, no, and that's that's my job. <laughs> um, but uh, one thing that cannot be really fudged for an oil producer, an oil and gas producer, is exploration and development costs. Right. Yeah. Um, so walk me through what that entails, mm-hmm. and maybe some companies that investors looking to get invested in the space might look at that are doing really well based upon this metric. Yeah. So um, they generally break out costs in two different brackets. Um, exploration and development is usually uh, sometimes termed as finding and development or exploration and development. The second half is production and, and completion. So the former, the exploration and development cost, yep. that's the thing that's been cut a lot a the lot. last yeah, few yeah. years. <laughs> you look at um, a company like Marathon Oil. Um, so th- to take their exploration budget for conventional oil over the last couple of years, in 2014 it was $500 million a year. 2015 cut it in half to $250 million a year. 2016, thirty million dollars a year. Oh, <laughs> so where um, is that thirty million going? It, there's a few uh, longer tail projects that okay. they just kind of have to. Put what do you even get for thirty million dollars? Yeah, uh, not much, and that's one of the big worries in the industry. Um, is these are the projects that are going to deliver oil production years down the road, and that is why companies have decided to cut back on that in the last year or two because they need cash flow now to pay for those dividends I mentioned a little earlier. And um, and to just keep the lights on, so they've been pulling back on these long-term investments. Um, ConocoPhillips as well, um, pulling back a lot in the Gulf of Mexico. They plan to completely exit exploration drilling in the Gulf of Mexico by 2017. Wow! So and you know offshore is definitely um, a little bit more of a coin flip, and it's definitely more expensive um, from top to bottom exploration, drilling, and completion. So. Um, that being said, there's a lot of reserves supposedly out there. Yeah, so they could be missing a, a big, a big heap of oil reserves. Um, but onshore, they've got a pretty decent portfolio. Yeah. So um, obviously, um, with exploration and development costs mm-hmm. on planet Earth, you've got a pretty wide range because you go over to like Saudi Arabia's Guar field and you stick a straw in the sand. And <laughs> yeah, you've right, got oil. Yeah. And that's what we call conventional oil. Right. Easier to find, easier to drill for, um, versus unconventional, which is offshore and shale. Typically. And then, and obviously, at the other end of the spectrum is uh, you know uh, deep sea offshore yeah. stuff, thousands Antarctica, of feet below the water, and, all that yep. stuff. What kind of cost per barrel? And just give me ranges. I mean, you don't have to be exact. What What's good for conventional? What's normal for offshore? I mean, just kind of anecdotally, you can just spitball a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so I did want to get an idea. Um, when you're looking at capital spending, which generally includes um, this exploration, the one time costs, um, you're looking at some of these areas around the world. You look at Norway, it could be 65% of the cost of a barrel, it could wow. be 51% in the UK. So, and then you get into us that, like we talked about, uh, Saudi Arabia and their fields, you're looking at um, some of these costs. Are below five and ten dollars a barrel. Yeah, I, so, I saw this one number it was like seven or eight dollars a barrel, yeah. and I was like, <laughs> so it's a very regional. Um, the UK is dealing with the North Sea. Um, that keeps going turbulent up, right? water. Yeah. Um, limit they've kind of um, removed from a lot of the transportation options. Um, so you've you've got some exploration and development costs there, which, um, as I mentioned, is a little over fifty percent, and you're looking at maybe twenty to twenty five dollars a barrel. Got it. Which is ironically enough where crude bottomed out earlier. Yeah, this year. exactly. So, and that's why exploration was one of the first things to go for a lot of companies. I cannot believe they uh, marathon cut to thirty yeah, million yeah, bucks. Basically, from five hundred million to thirty million in two years. Uh, I, <laughs> 
I'm just still picked. I, I I'm gonna go to their latest earnings. Yeah, yeah. Okay. To find out where this thirty million dollars went, because it's just it's it's going very slowly. Is where it's going. Can you even we, get a rig for that? Like what? Um, <laughs> onshore, but if they're if these are, I can't remember which projects that this thirty million is going towards. But if it's offshore, um, no, that's not really gonna cut it for very yeah. long. Got it. Okay. Um, so moving on to production costs. Yes. Um, this is really where especially onshore conventional producers have been focusing on because mm-hmm. they've been cutting exploration development costs they're not finding more oil but um, they've really been getting more efficient they've been trying to and they've had to because of this downturn yep. um, and, you know you see these estimates where I, uh, most producers I've seen that are just onshore shale producers their uh, production costs come down 20 30 percent yeah um, walk us through Almost that sometimes on an annual basis yeah it's yeah, crazy yeah. yeah. Um, so walk us through um, what production costs entail, yep. how they're getting better at it, I guess, and maybe a few more names that are doing well. Yeah, so you're looking at um, you've got the drilling activities, which is basically setting up shop, drilling the wells, and then the completion uh, aspect, which is the majority of the cost. You're looking at generally 60% or above for the completion side, and that's the fracking and the extracting. And so. Um, what you've seen over the last year or so is companies do everything but the completion stage because it is the right. most expensive and it can be done relatively quickly. Um, it's just very capital intensive, very labor intensive, and very resource intensive because uh, you're dealing with propens, you're dealing with all the fluids, the sand, the silicone, whatever whatever they might be using, um, and that does vary by field. So if you're looking at some of the drilling costs across the four major basins in the U.S., uh, the Bakken. Um, drilling costs a million bucks. Uh, about for a well. For a well is about two and a half million in the Bakken. Uh, Marcellus just under two. Eagle Ford right around two, and Permian right around two. Um, but this all comes with different depths, different horizontal lengths, and by depths and horizontal lengths, I mean the the depth straight down that these wells are being drilled, and then the lateral and horizontal length is basically the length of. Um, the frack stages that they're drilling right. out, which are getting several thousand feet now, and those are, and then within that several thousand feet, you've got several fracking stages that they go through to access multiple different portions of this well. Um, the Bakken is the deepest and the longest, generally, and with the Marcellus being the shallowest and and less long underground horizontally, left, right, north, south, east, west, wherever the heck they're trying to get this oil from. Right. And then, on top of that, then you've got the propent fluid and completion costs that are different. Uh, you might expect, because the Marcellus is the shortest and less deep, that it would be the cheapest. But no, it's actually the most expensive when you come when it comes to propent and uh, and fluid costs. So um, it just varies quite widely, which is why you see companies choose to specify in certain basins. Uh, you've got some companies like an EOG that spreads itself all around, and they're mostly in the Eagle capable. Ford. Yeah, yeah, they're like the largest producer in Texas. They're one of the largest producers in North Dakota, um, and they've got you know a small percentage of assets that they're trying to grow internationally. But for the most part, they're the largest domestic oil producer in the U.S. So I see a lot of. Um uh, players in their latest quarterly earnings, they're talking up, uh, just focusing on the Permian. Yeah, yeah. Why? Um, well, suppose it's compared to the Bakken and the Marcellus. This is West Texas for everybody that and doesn't o- know. Oklahoma as okay, well. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, so what, what you're looking at here is 
a field that's kind of been looked at last, but it has supposedly tremendous reserves. So the Marcellus got tapped very heavily for some oil, but mostly natural gas. Um, the Bakken and the Eagle Ford have just been the darlings of the shale energy revolution with um, Harold Ham basically pioneering up there in the, up in the Bakken and yeah, and a little bit into southern Alberta. And then um, the Eagle Ford was just a, a rush. Everyone wanted in on that. And so the Permian has kind of been uh, one of the last low-hanging fruits to be discovered. And it's just got multiple different layers to it. So they can tap a well, drill a little bit deeper, tap a whole nother resource formation. And there's call them a stacked play basically where you see these wells stacked on top of each other where you can access them at different yeah. different depths. So um before we move on um how have companies been able to drop these production costs so much like you know we're right you know we just said like yeah. 30% how, how how are they doing that? Well so you one, one thing is you've been seeing um greater wells drilled per rig so you've seen um pad drilling is what they call it uh rather than having to completely disassemble a rig move it to a new well site, and then reassemble it and drill again. Um, these rigs are basically movable. Uh, in some instances, they'll just basically um, put them on tracks, almost like, um, not like a railroad, but the same general idea. Like where, excavator tracks. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. where they're just, you've got these rolling wheels on basically like a bulldozer track, and yeah. they can they can move those in quadrants around a, a well site. And so you're drilling multiple wells with the same rig, so it shortens the time frame and the manpower that you need to disassemble and reassemble. And then the longer laterals with more fracking stages in those laterals. So um, you don't have to, you're just drilling that one well and mm -hmm. then accessing many, many, many more points in, within that well. And then you've also obviously got optimization with the propens and the fluids that they use just through testing. Um, in the major fields in the United States, the Bakken, the Eagle Ford, the Permian, and offshore Gulf of Mexico, Drilling and completion costs have come down roughly 25 to 30 percent since 2012. Wow! And that's that's basically the bread and butter of the United States. If you stripped out those four basins, we're not producing hardly any oil. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. So moving on. So uh, I, I'm an oil company. Yes. Sean Sean Oil. <laughs> Someday, um, I've spent a bunch of money in exploration development costs. I go out and I drill these wells, which is production costs. Mm -hmm. The byproduct, of course, are reserves, and these are measured on the balance sheet yes. of these oil companies, or in this case, Shonco, as PV10. Um, what the heck is PV10? <laughs> so PV10 is um, if if you're been in finance for a little while or you're just new, it's basically this discounted cash flows that you expect to receive from this oil. So you take your reserves minus the cost that you expect to have to outlay to extract those reserves and then discount it by 10%. Right. Back to the present value. Um, and the thing, the reason I asked you that and what I wanted to impress mm -hmm. upon our listeners is it involves a lot of guesswork. Yes, it does. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but you, they have to do it. Like it yeah. belongs on the balance sheet, but it's, right. you know, it's basically just a way to like kind of, create a standard across the industry because you've got these oil reserves that have varying levels of degree of certainty that they can be extracted. And so you look at what they call the three P's, proved, um, possible, and probable, or probable and then possible. So you've got proved is like, what we got? I think like a 90% certainty, probable is 50% certainty, and possible is a 10% certainty. So when you're looking at PV10, that's generally only 
prob or only proved. Yeah, from what I've seen, most companies only uh, talk about the first two. Yeah, yeah, right. the, the pot. Well, you know, ten percent certainty. Yeah, it's eh. not really much <laughs> to hang your hat on. Uh, sometimes you look at like a junior company; they want to talk about that because they want to <laughs> like they want to show these big boys, hey, you've got the technology to probably increase the likelihood of this, so maybe you can buy us. Right. And then they be then they become probable or they become proved for you for us. That so oil is probably never coming out of the ground, but yeah. we own it. So if you want it, come buy us. Got it. Okay. All right. So and then that you can use that number. You put enterprise value over that, so then you can get an idea of if the enterprise value is less than the PV10, that company boom. is most likely undervalued based on what they hold in the ground. Are you saying my my Sean Co. my Sean Oil is undervalued? I don't know. What's your EV to, EV no to PV10 ratio? I don't um, know. I drink your milkshake. <laughs> um, so, interesting dynamic over the last two years. Um, companies just because of the price of oil were having to decrease their reserves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because, Why? Because that goes again to the value of the reserves. Yes, you have the the barrels of oil, but in order to claim it as an asset, you have to monetize it. So, right. they have to use um, an industry standard for estimating the price of oil in the future. And that's how banks determine loans. They determine credit ratings. They, that's how um, you can basically value the balance sheet. And they do that companies. twice a year. They do do that <laughs> twice a year. And you've seen a lot of pain. Um, you've seen, I think, over 80 bankruptcies now because of these restrictions that banks have to place on these companies because they're like, well, the loans we gave you when oil was over 100 bucks aren't quite as secure oil in the right. $40 range. And that's just the cyclical nature of this beast that you're talking about when it comes to oil and gas. And then that extends right to materials mining as well. Got it. So, um, what who has the biggest reserves? Like, well, ExxonMobil has uh, just about 25 billion barrels of oil equivalent. Wow. And you compare that to EOG is around 2.1 billion barrels. So, 10x EOG and EOG is the largest domestic right. producer. Now, were most of Exxon's reserves in um, offshore? Like, where is it? Uh, it's they're so spread out geographically. I'm I'm not 100 percent sure yeah, of the okay. breakdown, but yeah. they are a very big offshore player. Strictly because to be a big offshore player, you have to be an uh, enormous a super major. Yeah. Um, other companies are trying, but they'll you know to catch up because it is the most expensive and the most. Uh, the most guesswork involved, I guess, is might be a good way to put it in terms of exploration. Um, you really have to have a secure balance sheet to even think about going out and searching for that. So, you've seen Exxon with the 25 billion barrels of oil equivalent under their reserves, um, but this last year they only replaced 67 percent of their production. Dun, dun, versus dun. a ten-year average of like one fifteen. Did they cut their exploration budget to thirty million dollars? No, they did not. <laughs> uh, if they did, uh, that's basically the salary of maybe someone in the C-suite. The, the the top ten executives. Yeah, that was what they made right. last year. Um, so that's another thing you want to look at: reserve replacement ratio. You want to make sure that the company you're investing in is is finding more than they're producing. Obviously, some years are are going to be worse than others, but a, a long-term average of one hundred fifteen percent isn't too bad. Got it. Is that, that's the industry average? That, no, that's Exxon's 10-year oh, average. Got uh, it. Yeah. But then you look at EOG, they said they replaced 192% Boom. of their reserves last year. Mic drop. Mic drop. Mic drop. Yep. Um, so before we head out, you know, we just thank you again for going over these terms and share your knowledge and everything. Yeah. Um, if you were to be one of our listeners, then go to you know your computer and go mm -hmm. to fool.com and start looking at some oil producers and sure. stuff. Um, how would you use these three metrics? Uh, just basically as a comparison across companies, um, 
if you had a, if you want to do a screen, if you're seriously looking to invest, that might be a way to find some that are maybe undervalued. Um, but you want to you want to make sure that they're operating properly. Reserve replacement comes to mind to make sure that they're still actually going out there and and they're capable of producing while they're while they're are, I mean finding while they're producing. Um, but then the other two, EV over PV10 and EV to reserves, that's just a good benchmark to compare valuations outside of PE and price to cash flow and mm-hmm. price to revenue because this business is so cyclical that you really want to understand the size of their asset base and compare that to the price of their stock. Awesome. All right. Well, Taylor, thanks for your time. You got it. Have a good one. Thank you, you too. That is it for us, Fools. If you're a loyal listener and have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Just email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Once again, that's industryfocus at fool.com. And as always, people in this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear in this program. For Taylor Markerman, I'm Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!